Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host. Hello, hello and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a pastry chef making her mark on the culinary scene in New York. We talk all about her latest cookbook, her famous baked Alaska, and that gravity-defying hair. She is the executive pastry chef at Gage and Tolner in New York City, author of The Sweet Side of Sourdough, and you can catch her on Food Network's digital series Taste of. It's Caroline Schiff. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Um, I literally squealed when we uh, we found out we were booking you as a guest because you and I first met at the Edith's pop up in New York City. I think it was like 5 a.m. Um, you were explain- explaining to me the intricacies of your latke making process. So, so lovely to reconnect with you here on the podcast. Likewise, I was so excited when I saw this email pop up and your name and I was like, oh, my God, let's do it. <laughs> I know. Uh, by the way, I remember that day your your hair was pretty tame or I should say covered at the time. Right. Um, that is not the norm, which I no. learned later from following you on Instagram. I wish people could see you right now, but they could definitely go to any photo of you and see what I'm talking about. Your hair is sort of its own main character by this point. Has it always been such a signature part of your look? It totally has. Even when I was a little kid, like I've always had big hair. It's always just been this like statement. And I, I feel like it's got like kind of its own identity. I mean, how do I mean, does it just get that way on its own? Yeah. Like you have to like zhuzh it up. No, just kinda... no, I do nothing. Sometimes I feel like I have to like, like tame it and zhuzh it down. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, it's a beast. It is so, it is so you. Um, oh, it is you. Just, 
like you said, part of your identity. And you are totally, I would say, an it girl right now. You Aww. are the ex- executive <laughs> pastry chef at the historic but newly reopened Gage and Tolner. Seems like you have a feature in a different magazine every week. And you just released a new cookbook on sourdough. I am so excited to talk to you I about did. all of yeah. all of this stuff. <laughs> but, you know, with all of this, this activity going on, I mean, what what is a typical day look like for you these days? Most of my days are I'm, I'm at the restaurant. I'm at Gage and Tolner. So and I am a restaurant person through and through. Yeah, I usually I mean, depending on the day and what we have going on, I'm either in, you know, kind of in the morning doing prep all day or I go in a bit later and I'm there through the evening and through closing and I work service. So it just kind of depends on the schedule and staffing and whatever. But I would say that's where I spend most of my time. And I just love there's something about restaurants and the energy and the sort of like almost like performance aspect of it that I have always just been so drawn to. Yeah. So I just I love being there. I know you're a big runner as well. How do you how do you fit that into your 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 busy schedule? Oh, my God, it's hard. And honestly, the past few weeks, it's been it's been particularly difficult because also, you know, my job is very physically demanding. So, you know, you're on your feet for anywhere from eight to 12 hours depending on the day and what needs to happen. You're up and downstairs all day. You're lifting bags of flour and things like that. So if it's a particularly busy week, I find it really challenging to run because like the idea of just like exerting myself more is a little crazy. (laughs) But yeah, it's like, I mean, there's periods in my life where I've like trained for marathons and things like that. Like right now, I'm not doing any of that. I'm really just focusing on work. So it's like wherever I can fit it in, a couple miles here and there. That's enough to kind of clear my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, you're you're getting plenty of uh, exercise in at work, lifting things and, yeah. and being on your feet all day. I think day. people don't realize how physically demanding in particular, I think pastry is just because of the, I guess just the nature of it. Like, yeah, like lifting bags of flour, scaling things out, especially at like the volume we do where it's like a batch of Parker House rolls, that dough that we make every day depending on how many customers we're expecting, private parties, whatever, that ball of dough can weigh easily 30 pounds. And you're getting all those ingredients into the mixer. You're getting all those ingredients out. You're moving it into the walk-in. You're pulling it out to shape it. So you're doing this over and over and over. So yeah, pastry in particular, I think, is really physically challenging. How did your expectations of what it kind of looked like to be a pastry chef kind of line up with the with the day to day reality of what, what it's actually like? That's a good question. I don't I actually don't know if I've ever really thought about it, because what I do is just like the most like normal, natural, comfortable thing for me. Like I always tell people like I there's absolutely nothing else that I could do because this is just it's so normal to me. A friend stopped by one day and like, you know, she came into the kitchen to say hi. And she's like, I have to leave. This energy is so like stressful and chaotic. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is like, it's just my world. Yeah. Well, I mean, you say you've always wanted to bake, but I know you have a you have a French degree from St. Andrews in Scotland. You came back to New York with fashion kind of in mind. So how did that path evolve into what you're doing now? I think I just always knew I wanted to create stuff. I mean, I've I've always been a creative person, an artist. I've always felt very comfortable in the kitchen. Um, I like working with my hands. I have a really hard time sitting at a desk. 
yeah, I think like making things is just just part of who I am. I mean, what what is that connective tissue you think between fashion and food? Like, what 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 do you kind of take from you know your love and your interest in in that world and and put it into your your food world? Like, especially pastry. I mean, it's it's fun. It's whimsical. It's on some level like unnecessary. Like we don't, we don't really eat dessert with every meal. Like it's not, it's the treat. It's the fun thing we get to indulge in. And, and as a chef, it's like, it's so expressive. Each dessert to me, especially like a cake. I mean, you could think about it. Like, you know, I made a cake yesterday and it was just so for a friend for her birthday. And it was so fun to kind of think about like the design and how I wanted to decorate it and like what like energy I was thinking about. And, and it's like, any other piece of art in this way. So I I think they're all I think it's all so related. Where do you draw those, I guess, those creative influences and inspirations from when you are kind of creating something new, like you said, a, a birthday cake for a friend or a new dessert at the restaurant? I feel like the inspirations come in from all these different places, like on a very practical level, like I'm very, um, very ingredient driven in in what I do. So Sometimes I'm thinking about what's coming up seasonally and then how do I want to showcase it? And so a lot of that inspiration will come from a particular ingredient. So if I'm like, okay, we're going into citrus season. One of my favorite citrus fruits is uh, kumquats, the tiny little uh, citruses. And you can eat the whole thing. It's so cool. So if I'm thinking about kumquats, it's like, okay, I want to build the dessert around that. Like I don't start with the cake or the ice cream or the mousse or whatever it is. I start with the the fruit or the nut or the chocolate or whatever. I build out from there. So that's like one kind of source of inspiration. And I tend to do like flavor maps where I think about like texture, temperature, complementary flavors, things like that. So there's a lot of inspiration there. I'm also just a very, as a creative person, I think like so much of the inspiration will just like, I'll be thinking about something and I'm just like, I want to put it together on the plate and taste it and bring it to life. Like it's the inspiration sometimes is like internal from like my, my daydreams and stuff like that. (laughs) Weird. Do you ever like wake up in the middle of the night with an idea and like have to write it down immediately? Oh, totally. I, it happens all the time. I'll dream about a dessert or like a, uh, a combination of flavors or just like visually something that I want to see come to life on the plate. Like it, it happens all the time. You came to New York with no formal training. How did you kind of navigate the intimidating culinary scene here and also kind of, you know, hone your skills into to what we see now? Well, I grew up here, which um, and I grew up with a love of restaurants. So I felt very I was so drawn to it. And when I got back from Scotland, I just I just started working in kitchens. You know, in the first restaurant, I started a small restaurant, The Good Fork in Red Hook, which are uh, chef Sohee Kim and her husband, Ben Schneider. They are now the owners of Gage and Tolner, along with business partner, uh, Sinjin Frizzell. So there's a really nice sort of like full circle thing there. But this was a small restaurant and I immediately, you know, I started working there, no experience, but it's just like one of those industries where you learn by doing and there's such a tradition of like teaching and mentorship and apprenticeship in the food world, which is really beautiful. But again, like, I don't know, it wasn't intimidating to me. It was like I wanted more of it. 
I remember just like those first nights of like working dinner service and just feeling like I got like bit by this bug and now I was like obsessed and this was like all I wanted to do. So it really, it, it just felt like these are my people. Like I found, <laughs> I have found my thing. I found my energy. I am not a morning person. Like it's, you know, like at the end of the day though, you, you have to have, you know, something about you that, that makes people kind of want to, you know, continue to mentor you, continue to take chances on you. Do you have like one personality trait you think that that was that kind of made you stand out a little bit? I, I definitely think I was just so excited by everything that like, constantly wanting to learn a little more and like a, a real energy for that. And honestly, that's something, I, you know, mentorship is so important. And that's something that I look for in when I'm hiring now and, and building the our, our team and everything. Like, I don't look at necessarily somebody's experience and where they've worked or whatever. I mean, all of that is nice. But like, if somebody is excited about pastry and wants to learn stuff and just wants to be there and do it, that's like the best qualification. Yeah. I mean, you can tell you you are so passionate about it. Um, do you think that as a woman in this industry, you do have to work a little bit harder to prove yourself? Yes. I am lucky that I started in a kitchen that was run by a female chef. So that's sort of like set the tone for me from the beginning of like, what a great kitchen is like, what respect looks like and and what sort of a, a healthy kitchen is. But I do I do think that there's still that like boys club a bit. I mean, not certainly not where I work. And I feel very lucky to to be able to be in the position in my career where it's like, I can pick the, the kind of kitchen I want to work in. Well, well, let's talk about your kitchen and Gage and Tolner. This is a historic Brooklyn restaurant, first opened in 1879, then it closed in 2004, officially reopened this past April after another delay during uh, the pandemic, of course. How has it felt just to be a part of this regeneration of a place that has so much history? It's so cool. It is so cool. I mean, we, first of all, it's like, I love, I love old stuff. So the second I heard about this project, this was back in like 2018. And, you know, I was, I was having lunch with Sohi and I had known about like the sort of the lore and the history of, of Gage and Tolner and Edna Lewis and what this place was and how significant it was to Brooklyn for so long. So yeah, so he told me, she was like, you know, Ben and Sinjin, they they saw the space and I think we might try to do this. And I don't know. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> there's going to be a baked Alaska on the menu. Like there's so much to say about it. But I think that as a chef, it really speaks to me, but it also speaks to me in terms of the community that this restaurant was such a fixture of downtown Brooklyn for so long. And to be able to bring it back, especially after going through this pandemic, and having it be this place that is bustling and full of energy and good vibes all night is like, it's just so, so wonderful to be part of that rebirth, I guess, of this iconic space and to really pay respect to the whole history. So in terms of the interiors and doing everything in terms of like, you know, when Ben was doing the, the restoration and the build out. 
everything went through the Landmarks Commission. It was done with such care and it was just so, so thoughtful and amazing to see it like just like really come back to life. And so really looking at all those old menus, how they kind of changed over the years um, and sort of paying respect to all of that history that was just so, so important. And, and then, you know, Gage and Tolner was, we meet so many people who, you know, everybody has a story. They're like, oh, I used to come here with my grandfather when I was a little kid. Uh, he would take me every Sunday or, you know, oh, we got married here 75 years ago. Like, it's just amazing. Like these people come in and you're just like the history. It's incredible. No, it truly is. And so much praise already in such a short period of time. I mean, Time Out recently said it was one of the 24 best new restaurants in the world, not New York, not the U.S., in the world. I know. Is- that was wild. Wild. <laughs> so wild. And every one of these articles, uh, you, you alluded to it. It mentions the baked Alaska for two. So if if anyone is unfamiliar with this now iconic dish already. Um, tell us, gotta walk us through how how this dish came to be. Well, baked Alaska is a um, Victorian era dessert, and it was originally served at Antoine's in New Orleans in the 1860s to commemorate the U.S. Uh, purchasing Alaska from the Russian Empire. So it's this very <laughs> old school dessert, and it is really, really over the top. And when you think about making that dessert back then, because I know how labor intensive it is now. So I think about making it back then and it was, you know, they didn't have ice cream machines in the way that we have them whipping meringue by hand. Like it's just mind blowing. So it was sort of like the epitome of indulgence. And a baked Alaska is for anybody who's not familiar, it's layers of ice cream that are set and then the whole thing gets covered in meringue and um, blowtorched. And it's just this like big dramatic thing. So it's a labor intensive dessert. And it was, yeah, it was very, it was like very fancy. It was very fashionable back then. So I knew I wanted to have it on the menu as this nod to the Victorian era, but it was never on the menu at Gage and Tolner. It was served at Delmonico's, but there was no, I didn't find any evidence of it ever being on the menu at Gage and Tolner. It kind of fits the era, but you know, wasn't based on like an old menu there. I also just, and even pre-pandemic, I felt like that space was just so special and and opulent. And I, I wanted a, des- a dessert that kind of like that sort of fit the space, I guess, and and was like a real like celebration and kind of like over the top thing. And I think in this period that we're in where it's like, you know, we're vaccinated and we're able to go to dinner and it's, you know, we're, we're kind of slowly getting to a point where life is getting more and more normal again. I feel like it's so special to have this giant dessert that you get to share with people. It's for two. It's huge. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. You mentioned it being a, a labor of love. How, how long does it take you to to create one? So it's a three day process. And I, I tell people that because I want them to understand kind of how special this thing is. We make all the ice creams in house. So day one is making each ice cream flavor. So there's dark chocolate, fresh mint, and a vanilla amarena cherry flavor. So all those bases get made. They have to sit overnight to get like 
the proper consistency. Then the next day we can churn them and we start layering them into these, these big molds we have. I do them in like these big slabs. It's the vanilla cherry layer. Then like that sets. Then we do the chocolate that freezes and sets. Last is the mint. And then we do like this like layer of a uh, crunchy chocolate cookie crumb. And then that has to sit overnight to set fully. So then you can, so then, so that's the day two. So then day three, you can unmold it. I, I These big slabs, I portion them out. And then when an order comes in, I make the French meringue to order. And, um, and then, I, you know, I swoosh it on and then I blowtorch the whole thing. That's the process. And it's really like, it's a labor of love. <laughs> yeah, it is. a It is a process. What are people's reactions when it when it comes out to their table? I don't spend too much time out on the floor. But I think in general, it's pretty like, people are pretty stunned. You know, sometimes if I have like a friend coming in, or, you know, I like to go say hi. And you know, if they order dessert, sometimes I'll, I'll bring the dessert to their table, say hello, whatever. And um, <laughs> I was walking out with a baked Alaska one night recently, and I walked by a table that was on their appetizers. And this guy just is like, staring at it. And he's like, what is that? He's like, I gotta have it. I gotta have it. Like, people are just so stunned by like the size and the the drama of it. And it's just it's a really fun looking dessert. Especially, you know, for for people that just have to have dessert. Uh, my boyfriend who who you met, Justin, has started recently ordering dessert first. If if like that's something that like he really wants to have, he wants to make sure he has room for the dessert. So he just orders it first. It throws people off all the time. But oh, that's great. No, he should come. He should come into Gage and Tolner and just get like three courses of dessert. <laughs> he would love that. I'm always curious, like, what is the process of, of like you said, this is a three day process, like knowing how many people might be ordering dessert on like any given night? Like, is there some sort of math that goes with that? Or are you just kind a of a little bit? Yeah. One thing about this job that has absolutely like stunned me because I've been working in restaurants for a long time. And so I kind of have like an idea of what percentage of diners are going to order dessert on any given night. So I kind of know what a safe number of orders of something is going to be. I don't know if it's like coming out of the pandemic or the fact that Gage and Tolner is such a special space, but people there are like, they are ordering dessert. Like almost every table gets dessert, which is incredible. I learned very quickly that we just are going to sell a lot of dessert. So now I sort of have a good idea of like per week, like what my pars should be for everything. But there are those nights that totally just like blow your mind where you're like, I cannot believe I just sold that many orders of baked Alaska. So I'm sort of always looking at like at the end of each night, we inventory everything. So I'm always looking at, you know, how many orders of baked Alaska do I have in the freezer? And how many services is that going to get me through? And when do I need to start the next round? So it's a little bit of guesswork, but it's but at this point, it's we have some some good data that it can inform me. Do you have like a record or do you like know like the the, the most amount of baked Alaska's you've ever sold in, in a single night? I'm not exactly sure, but it's got to be like maybe around 30, which is if you think about it a lot, because these are all for two people. That's at least 60 people eating this dessert we will do anywhere from like you know, 175 to 250 covers a night. So 
the numbers are up there. That speaks volumes for uh, for the quality and the the flavors that you just described. And speaking of desserts and sweets, uh, your new cookbook, The Sweet Side of Sourdough, just released. So congratulations, yeah, first you. of all. Uh, you know, most people just became obsessed with sourdough in general during the pandemic. You actually wrote a book about it. Um, was this was this idea in the works already or was it truly a pandemic baby? No, it is a pandemic baby through and through. And it was kind of uh, it all kind of happened by accident a little bit. Like I never intended to write a sourdough book, especially as my first cookbook, because it's it adds like a whole other layer of complexity to every single recipe is the fact that then there's sourdough involved. So like right after I kind of proposed it to the publisher and they, they liked the idea. I like got off the phone and was like, Oh crap. What did I do? (laughs) (laughs) But it really came out of the fact that, so, you know, we were supposed to open Gage and Tolner March, 2020. So we had done like, you know, I'd been in the space since January we had been doing all the R&D, working on everything. We had like hired our uh, up our whole staff. We had done parties for the the WeFunders and we had started doing... We had done like a couple sort of like friends and family services and we were like gearing up. All of a sudden, city shuts down and I'm like, well, I have to keep our sourdough starter alive. So she's going to come home with me. <laughs> <laughs> Does she have a name? Yeah. Um, so uh, Edna Lewis, who was the um, chef at Gage and Tolner uh, later in her career, um, she was there in the in the 90s and is just such an inspiration to me and legend. And I mean, her cookbooks are some of the most beautiful books that I own. She's named after Edna, Edna Lewis. At that point, we had no idea how long this was going to be. We thought, oh, a couple of weeks, who knows? Like, <laughs> So <laughs> I know I, I laugh, but it's just like, wow, can't believe we all went through this. Anyway, so I was keeping her alive at home and, you know, you're feeding this thing every day baking bread every day. And I was also just sort of like losing my mind because I'm a people person and I don't like, I'm not a homebody. Like I like to be on my feet. So all of a sudden, all the things that I love that sustain me emotionally are not there. The way I dealt with it was to, you know, be creative and to use this starter, not only as like a way to leaven bread, but I started seeing it as like an ingredient. And I was also, I was like, I can't eat any more bread. This is crazy. (laughs) So I just started adding it to, you know, brownies and reworking my chocolate chip cookie recipe. And like, I just started doing all these things with it as also a way to not waste anything. You know, it's like we're, there were flower shortages and everything. So it all just kind of happened by accident. And then, you know, I was talking to my agent a little bit about it. And then this, this publisher reached out to me and I kind of, I pitched all these like other ideas. I was like, well, you know, what about like a pantry cookie book or like cakes or whatever? And they're like, yeah, hmm, that's nice. We have stuff like that. And I was like, well, I've been doing this weird thing with my sourdough starter. (laughs) And they were like, that has legs. And I was like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) that was it what do you think sourdough adds you know to desserts and sweets that that you can't get from any other ingredient 
it's interesting. Each sourdough starter has like its own personality a little bit, but it adds like an incredible tangy flavor. It tends to make things very crispy. So like really like crispy, flaky pie crust, super tender crumb. The chocolate chip cookies, it's like my perfect chocolate chip cookie because they get like really crunchy on the edges, but the inside stays like nice and chewy. I always love like a little bit of like a savory element in my baked goods. Like I always add like a little bit more salt than anybody else does. Like I just, cause it kind of, it makes it mouthwatering and it makes you go back for more. Whereas if something is so cloying, kind of can't finish it. Sourdough has this savory tangy quality that I just think like balances the sugar so well. What would be your advice uh, to anyone out there like intimidated by sourdough or my mistake always is forgetting to to feed the starter. <laughs> <laughs> so we've all neglected our sourdough babies at one point or another. It's okay. For people who are intimidated, I will say like once you've done it a few times and you get into the routine of feeding and you understand how it works, it's really quite simple. Find a book or find a guide online that just makes sense to you because there's like thousands out there. And some of them, even I read some of them and I'm like, well, this is crazy. This doesn't make sense. Find a resource that feels comfortable to you because there's so many valid ways to go about making great bread and making sourdough. And also the stakes are low and you're going to have some fails and it's only bread, it's flour and water. So I say go for it. How do you test your recipes and who who gets to sample them? During the process of writing this book, and I did the whole thing in six months, which is very quick for a cookbook. And I honestly, I wish I had had more time, but it was just sort of like, we knew the vaccines were were coming out we knew the data was good. So I was like, okay, the restaurant's going to have to open at some point. I just want to finish this. And I also wanted it to come out now. Like I wanted it to come out when people are still excited about sourdough and it's a baking book. I wanted it to come out around the holidays. I really hustled and I got it done in six months. So I was testing like five recipes a day, which is bonkers. I have a small kitchen, normal, like Brooklyn top floor of a brownstone, like cute little kitchen. So I'm like baking all day. I also just like my pantry was absolute chaos. And then I set up like an auxiliary pantry, like in the hallway with like bins of flour. Like it was absolutely deranged. And then, you know, it's like peak pandemic. It's like the winter and like, you know, there's like another surge and it's, it's all just like scary. And I'm in my apartment, like just surrounded by baked goods. There's like five cakes around me, which sounds like it's really fun, but it very quickly becomes a very stressful situation because <laughs> you're like, I'm either going to eat all of this or it's going to go to waste. And I don't want either of those things to happen. (laughs) So um, I ended up just really connecting with like a lot of friends and my neighbors and stuff like that. And so like a friend would bike by and I'd like toss them a bag that had whatever in it. And I'd be like, all right, well, go eat it. And then like, give me some feedback, you know, (laughs) one friend who lives like two blocks away. I like shoved a bunch of like sticky buns in her mailbox one day. Normal. (laughs) Like totally, totally normal. Or like other people live in my building. So I would like leave like, you know, downstairs, like in the entryway, I'd leave like a bag of biscuits or something like that. So I feel like I was able to share stuff. And then sort of once I tested a recipe a few times and felt like it was getting there, like it was going to be like solid enough. Then I had a couple recipe testers who were all so, so wonderful, who I gave recipes to. And they just kind of having another set of eyes on them 
that are also like very informed. And yeah, so my recipe testers really helped me like just put those like finishing touches on everything. And I'm sure, like you said, like all, all the sourdough starters are, are different. So having other people test them with their own stars, I'm sure was was very helpful as well. And everybody's ovens are different. So it's really like I think that recipe testing process for cookbooks is so important because every home kitchen is different. And you kind of have to work it into the recipe that this could take 25 minutes to bake or 35 minutes that if you live in New York and it's really cold, it's going to take three hours for this to rise. Whereas if you're in Florida, it's going to be ready in an hour, (laughs) (laughs) you know, things like that. So you kind of have to like, it's, it's great to find like a recipe testers that have like all of these different situations to help you kind of work out all those little kinks and bring it to life. Coming up next, Caroline chats about filming Food Network's Taste of Digital series, where she shares some of her favorite Jewish recipes and traditions. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And also another special thing that happened recently. Um, you filmed some digital content for Food Network Taste of series. So far, one of them is out, Taste of Hanukkah. You also did Taste of Shabbat. I watched Taste of Hanukkah and it felt like, you know, it was a food video, but it also was almost like a meditation. You have a way of of describing, you know, the food and especially these recipes that are really, you know, personal to you. The Hanukkah episode is the, wait, tell me if I'm saying it right, Sufkanyot? Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. So which are the jelly donuts um, traditionally eaten during Hanukkah? Um, we, we like to go to Ostrovitsky's in Brooklyn and get ours every year. So I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with the, the tradition because uh, my boyfriend is Jewish. But walk us through the, the, the history, the significance and, and why this was a, a special dish for you to prepare for this series. One thing about Judaism that I find really, really beautiful is that we have so much symbolism in food and every holiday has the foods that are important and significant that, you know, you absolutely must have. I just think it's like a really beautiful way to tell a story and observe a holiday. In Judaism, we we really get to to do that. And I just, I think it's so special. So, you know, all the holidays for me, there's like a baked good that's like so, so important and nostalgic. And, you know, Hanukkah is all about uh, fried food. It's all about the oil and the miracle of Hanukkah. So it's a very delicious holiday. It's why we eat latkes. <laughs> but really anything fried is, is, will hold that symbolism. You know, sufganyot are one of those things. And they're just fried, light, fluffy, delicious donuts, um, traditionally filled with jam, but you could fill it with custard, Nutella, whatever. And you have Taste of Shabbat coming out next year as well. Can you give us yeah. a little sneak peek of maybe what dish we're going to see? Or I will not give anything away, but Shabbat happens every Friday at sundown. And it's about giving thanks and relaxing and sitting down to a beautiful meal with people you love and taking a break. And it goes through Saturday. But for me, you know, my memory growing up, and this will explain basically my entire personality, we would go to synagogue and it was Friday night and you would sit through services. And then right after services, there's the Oneg Shabbat, which is just like this beautiful evening spread of cookies and pastries and cakes and tea and coffee. And it's just this lovely tradition. I would run like from the sanctuary to the reception room because I was like, I had to have like first pick the spread and, you know, the cookies I wanted and the cake I wanted and everything. So it was just like, you know, it was all about, it was all about the sweets for me. So yeah, on my Shabbat episode, it's sort of tribute to that tradition of having something sweet that can kind of then last you through the weekend. And it's really beautiful. No, it's it's beautiful too, just how much you identify with your Jewish, you know, heritage. I know you, your bat mitzvah necklace is very important to you. You never take it off. How much does all of that kind of play a role in, in your life and your work? For me, I mean, obviously, you know, I work nights and weekends. And so it's, you know, I'm not observant in that way, but it's something that's so important to my family, you know, these holidays and traditions and gathering together and just having that be something that no matter how busy everybody gets, we make the time to do it. And, you know, especially during the peak pandemic, when, you know, we really couldn't see anybody, my family and I would do Shabbat over Zoom. We did Passover over Zoom. And it was like, it was a way to kind of, you know, keep us all connected. And and it was definitely like an emotional lifeline for all of us. My brother's an ICU doctor. And it was just, you know, he was going through his his own experience with the pandemic that was just so, so intense and heartbreaking. And so I think for us, these traditions and a lot of the Jewish holidays are about resilience 
and finding joy and things like that really kind of like brings us together in this beautiful way. And I think that, yeah, as a chef, I just, I love seeing symbolism and meaning in food. And as I said, in Judaism, we we have so much of that. I do bring that to work with me. It's not specifically about anything Jewish at that point. It's just like food is so much more than just this thing we eat. Food is so emotional. And it's so special that you get to to share some of those traditions with us on this digital series. And Food Network fans also might recognize you from a, a couple episodes of Beat Bobby Flay where you were a competitor. What was your experience like filming that show? Oh, it was awesome. I had a great time. Bobby's like so he's so great. He's so professional, easy to work with. But he does. He has the home court advantage. And I just feel like it's a little unfair. Whatever. <laughs> no, it was so awesome. So I did the first time I went up against Bobby. I did like a chocolate almond ganache tartlet thing. It was like a Valentine's episode. And then I did my, I got a rematch and I lost again. I did key lime pie. Like the the process, the sort of behind the scenes, it's so cool because like everybody on set is just, they set you up. They're like so professional. They give you this pantry tour you know, as you're cooking, if you need anything, you can just like yell and they'll like, like you can scream like Vitaprep and they're like bottom left. <laughs> like it's just, they just know what they're doing. It's really great. I love it. I mean, I'm somebody who works really, really well under pressure. I actually like it because I think it just kind of like puts me in the zone a little bit. So the clock starts and you just go and there's so much adrenaline and energy. And it's fun too. Like Bobby's joking as he's like cooking and it's, you have this like banter with him and the judges. So yeah, that show is really fun. No, it is. It is a machine for sure. A very well oiled machine. And you went the right route. I mean, the playbook is go sweets, go dessert up against Bobby. But um, hopefully the third time's the charm. As a judge, I didn't I don't think I, I won until like my third or fourth time on the show. I would love to judge as well. You know, any dessert episodes coming up? <laughs> Putting it out into the universe. Well, this has been such a delight and joy to, to reconnect with you. We're going to finish things off with a rapid fire around and then we have one final question here on Food Network Obsessed. Okay, rapid fire questions. Favorite running route? From my house, I like to go I live in Fort Greene. I like to go over the Manhattan Bridge. Manhattan Bridge is better for running than the Brooklyn Bridge because there's not as many people and then you get to look at the Brooklyn Bridge. Yes, so you get the view. Exactly. I like to just touch down in Chinatown and then I run back and it's like a perfect 10K and it's Absolutely lovely. Cheese of choice. I really think that Harbison made by Jasper Hill is just one of the so best good. foods on the planet. And I would eat that every day if I could. It is a special, special cheese for sure. Butter or jam? Butter. Always. Favorite fashion memory? There's like a picture of me as like a, I must be like four years old, where I just insisted on putting on like every bracelet that I owned and they go like all the way up my arm. And I can tell just looking at the pictures that I thought I was like so fabulous. I mean, you were, I'm sure. Most underrated pastry. Just a simple, plain, but perfectly executed croissant, not an almond one, not a chocolate one, not a filled whatever one. The plain Jane perfect croissant is like, you cannot improve on that. All right. Most overrated pastry. I don't know. I don't know if there is one. Okay. You can you can give a pass on that one. Okay. 
I'll allow it. I make the rules. All right. Last last rapid fire before the final question. Latest pinch me moment. This is crazy. But I was outside last night and this guy walks by me. He's like walking his dog and he's like, oh, my God, I'm making your focaccia right now. I got your book. I'm so excited. And I was like, what? Like, who are you? It was so cool. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, my God, you're a stranger. You're making my focaccia. This is amazing. That is really cool. And like definitely kind of a a full circle moment for. And I I don't think anything like that could ever get old. Like, that's just it's so special because it's like all I want to do is just like feed people. And if it's through the restaurant or through my book or whatever, come to my house for dinner. It's like, that's all I want. That's really cool. All right. Last question here. We asked this to everyone on Food Network Obsessed. What would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want to know what you're eating for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and of course, dessert. There's no rules. So calories don't count. You can travel wherever in between meals. No rules. Your day. First is the perfect croissant good coffee. I'm a simple girl, really. (laughs) Splash of milk, you know, that's it. Lunch is, you know, a great grilled cheese sandwich. Like you cannot, cannot beat it. Great grilled cheese sandwich. What kind of bread? I like it on um, like Jewish deli rye. That's my favorite. And then um, Swiss cheese. There's tomato on it, a good tomato. Pickle on the side, like just perfect, perfect grilled cheese. For a late afternoon snack, awesome cheese board with olives and good bread. And then for dinner, I mean, I just want really good pizza, really good pizza, red wine, and then dessert. I mean, I can have more than one dessert, right? Of course. Okay. Well, it's definitely going to be sitting at the bar at Gage and Tolner eating a baked Alaska and a piece of coconut cake with, with somebody I love. Like that sounds... Amazing. It does. It sounds like a, a perfect food day for Caroline. Thank you so much uh, for for chatting with us and continued success with the cookbook, with the restaurant and everything else you're doing in life. Uh, it is truly inspiring to watch. Thank you so, so much. This was such a such a pleasure. And come visit me at Gage and yes. soon. I know Please. we're doing it. We're doing it. We're doing it. I'm going to hit you up. OK, <laughs> do it. Do it. So much fun chatting with Caroline. I cannot wait to get my hands on her new cookbook. And of course, got to go sit at the bar at Gage and Tolner. You can catch more of Caroline on Food Network's Taste Of on foodnetwork.com. Also, just a quick heads up. Food Network Obsessed is going to be taking a little break from releasing new episodes over the holidays. But not to worry. We will be back in the new year with more of your favorite Food Network stars. Happy holidays, everyone. And as always, thank you so much for listening. It has been such a fabulous year with all of you new fans and old. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you do not miss a thing. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We do love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies in the new year. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 